Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the new 2013 production of Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination. They may be living here, but they're still from Ohio or Mississippi or someplace else. They have never really moved here to be a Floridian. And that's what I would like for people to be, is a Floridian. The last of Florida's trotline fishermen. I guess it just, just ain't going to be none of it here in, I say, 15 years, it'll probably be extinct. You just don't sell that much and you don't make that much money. And it's a hard life. Catching snakes for tourists in the 1950s, all that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Upon the Suwannee River, far, far away, there's where my heart is turning ever, there's where the old folks stay. The Brevard Theatrical Ensemble is performing a brand new version of their original production, Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination, Friday, August 16th and Saturday, August 17th at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday, August 18th at 2 p.m. at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. The production looks at people and events that shape the state. Director Lady Gail Ryan started the Storytellers of Brevard more than 30 years ago, but for the past decade, the group has been known as the Brevard Theatrical Ensemble. I thought that storytelling could get pretty boring, um, just a regular folky thing, uh, and I wanted it to have a little bit of, of theatrical influence and music to go along with it to sell it to audiences because even when you go to the headquarters it's hard to get people to come in and see storytellers because they they it just doesn't sell they think it's somebody reading a book in the library which has nothing to do with it so i i went a little further and i thought okay one person can get up there and tell a story for an hour that's easy to do uh if you're a good storyteller but you don't get an audience with that but if you have 10 storytellers or nine and you do it with other influence, then you get a really big crowd to come and see and then understand what storytelling is about because storytelling is a one-on-one -on -one experience. This is the sixth new production of Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination, and each production is very different. The original production was mostly a collection of Florida cracker stories and songs, but the program has evolved into a series of performances looking at many aspects of Florida history and culture. Lady Gail Ryan. 
I must say that this has been for more for my benefit than anybody else because when they ask me to do a cracker show, my, I'm a native Miamian. I just absolutely bristled because I said I'm not a cracker. Um, it, it embodied to me not what I thought crackers were. That taught me a big lesson, that first show. And then I realized, you know, Miami, because I was raised in Miami, that is a very different place than Jacksonville and Tallahassee and Orlando. And I realized... I was embarrassed most of the time when I told people that I was a Floridian, particularly when I was growing up. And when I'd say I was from Miami, they said, oh, Ohio, I'm Miami. Because we were in the backwoods, you know, and we didn't have all the facilities that they had in New York City. And then I got to see the bright lights and all the rest of the stuff. And so I sort of backed away from being a Floridian. It was like being a nobody. And I have now discovered and discovering more all the time how important the people were who came to lay the foundations of Florida. We have we have unbelievable people who've passed through this state. And last night I was talking to some people and they didn't even They've been living here, and they don't even know anything about Florida. There's, they may be living here, but they're still from Ohio or Mississippi or someplace else. They have never really moved here to be a Floridian. And that's what I would like for people to be, is a Floridian. In January 1894, gentleman Jim Corbett and English heavyweight champion Charles Mitchell fought for the title heavyweight champion of the world in Jacksonville. Florida's Governor Mitchell, Jacksonville Mayor Duncan, and Duval County Sheriff Napoleon Bonaparte Broward tried unsuccessfully to stop the fight, fearing it would bring gamblers, prostitutes, and other undesirables to the city. In the new production of Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination, Travis O'Beer tells the story. Well, this section of the program looks at um, an 1894 prize fight between world champion Gentleman Jim, James J. Corbett, and uh, the English champion, Charlie Mitchell. Um little back story, James J. Corbett was the first really major champion of the gloved era of boxing. He defeated the great John L. Sullivan, who was the last of the bare-knuckle champions. And um, Jacksonville, a lot of people at the time were very opposed to boxing. They thought it was barbaric. A lot of people still do today. But back then, especially, they, they were went so far as to incarcerate the fighters. Of course, they posted Bond. And... Um, a lot of people in Jacksonville, they knew it would help the town as far as monetary, and they and they tried to get the fight, which it eventually happened, but not without a bunch of controversy. I mean, as I said, near riots broke out, and several people were injured, but it's a really good story. When Jacksonville offered the host a much-touted prize fight, it opened the door for a brawl on a much larger scale. It was a duel for the world's heavyweight boxing championship, and all eyes of the international sports world were fixed on the little town of Jacksonville, Florida, that January day in 1894. But before it was over, the state was plunged into controversy. A near riot developed, troops were called out, and it seemed that Governor Henry L. Mitchell himself was ready to step into the ring to stop what he called a disgraceful and brutal spectacle. As a primary owner of Ringling Brothers' Barnum & Bailey Circus, John Ringling helped to create the modern circus. John and his wife Mabel began spending winters in Florida in 1909, and in 1927 he moved the headquarters of his circus to Sarasota. Today, visitors can tour the Venetian-style Ringling Mansion Catazan and enjoy the extensive collection at the John and Mabel Ringling Museum of Art.
In the new production of Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination, Geraldine Marie Hess tells the John Ringling story after thoroughly researching his life. I found out a lot that I didn't know about the man and how he was the fifth wealthiest man in the United States and that he died in New York City in 1936 with only $311 in his bank account. However, his estate in our collection was worth way over $23.5 million. And he could have settled his financial troubles if he just would have sold a piece of art from his collection, but he didn't. He held it all in trust for the state of Florida. Ladies and gentlemen, Ringling Barnum and Bailey presents the greatest show on earth. Gaudy circuses and classic art would seem to be incompatible interests, but if circus king John Ringling had not had a shrewd talent for the former and a gifted eye for the latter, then Sarasota and Florida would have been deprived of the magnificent Ringling Museum of Art, one of the world's great art galleries, and Sarasota would not be the thriving and prosperous cultural colony it is today, a distinctive center for art, music, and theater. Sir Francis Drake's raid on St. Augustine in 1586 left the entire town burned to the ground and crops destroyed. The attack was part of England's war with Spain. Anthony Whitsett is presenting the story of Drake's raid in the new production of Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination. Whitsett is one of the original members of the Brevard Theatrical Ensemble, going back more than three decades to when the group was called the Storytellers of Brevard. Well, it's, it's involved from basically standing up in front of a, a library reading to going out and giving a performance to each person on the front row. You know, we're, instead of them coming to us, we're coming to each person. And it, it becomes a very personal day and you're literally putting on a performance for each person in the front row. It's not your conventional storytelling. In 1581, Queen Elizabeth I dubbed him Sir Francis Drake, for she was much indebted to him. At a time when Spain and Portugal ruled the waters of the world, he was the answer to England's prayers. Sir Francis Drake was a man of many facets, one of the greatest mariners the sea had ever seen. He was a superb navigator, a commander, a driving leader, a persuasive preacher, and a warm person who loved children. An unusually kind sea captain for the day, he almost always freed his prisoners and often gave them gifts. However, he would not allow his authority to be questioned, and he could be ruthless if anyone or anything deliberately stood in his way. Besides a focus on Florida history and culture, a common thread in each production of Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination is an effort to cover a variety of different time periods and include less well-known people among the more famous Floridians. Director Lady Gail Ryan says an additional theme this year is the natural Florida, particularly the Suwannee River. One of the things I'm very fascinated in is how that Florida four times went up and down, and, and uh, the geologically, I've become absolutely engrossed in this. Um, I'm ashamed to say, I, always at our programs, I'm always saying, why have the Swanee River as our song? Now I know why we have Swanee River, but it had to be this year, and going back and delving into Florida and how it started, and I wanted to find out 
How did it start? How did Suwannee River start ecologically? And this has been a search that has been wonderful in Florida to find out wh wh where we are stepping on the ground right now and how it's important that we save this ground. It is a very precious place. The Brevard Theatrical Ensemble is performing a brand new version of their original production, Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination, Friday, August 16th and Saturday, August 17th at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday, August 18th at 2 p.m. at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Tickets are available at myfloridahistory.org slash tickets. Then many happy days I squandered, many the songs I sung.
Diane Taraz performing Old Folks at Home, the state song of Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, find great books on Florida history and culture, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Join the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society and like our daily post today in Florida history. I don't like spiders and snakes, and that ain't what it takes to love me. You fool, you fool. I don't like spiders and snakes, and that ain't what it takes to love me. Like I want to be loved by you. In the 1950s, the Click Sisters caught snakes for the amusement of pre-Disney Florida tourists. Janie Gould explains. Before Disney, Florida tourist attractions were heavy on gator wrestling and monkey jungles. One of the best known of those early attractions was the Ross Allen Reptile Institute. It was at Silver Springs in Ocala. Ross Allen opened his snake farm in 1929, and he promoted it endlessly. Securing two coils around Tom's legs. Ross swims into the rescue. Several Tarzan films starring Johnny Weissmuller were filmed at Silver Springs, and Ross Allen sometimes was a stand-in for Weissmuller. Ross Allen always needed a steady supply of snakes, both for research and for tourists who would take them home as live souvenirs. Two sisters who grew up on their parents' dairy near Moorhaven used to catch snakes for Ross Allen. Debbie Click Paschal caught lots of them. That's how we made our spending money. Becky Click Choate was no slouch either. We caught what we call chicken snakes, rat snakes, king snakes, mud snakes. And my brother, he was braver than the rest of us, so he would catch moccasins or or rattlesnakes. And we did catch uh, ground rattlers occasionally. Poisonous snakes were really against the rule because our parents didn't want us messing with the poisonous one. She captured them live, of course, and delivered them to Ross Allen live. Yes, and we had a horse named Speedy. Debbie and I would use him to reach holes up in big trees. Debbie would stand up on the back of the horse and brace herself against me while she reached up into a hole where there might be a chicken snake. And just stick her bare hand in there? Uh, No, there were certain trees that maybe a limb had died and it left a cavity in the tree. And then when it would rain, it would fill with water. So we would take a stick and poke down into the hole. And you could tell by the feel whether there was a snake in it or not. But there was one particular tree that we call the grape tree or the snake tree. And it wasn't. Either one. It was a cypress tree that had a huge grapevine, and on this grapevine we could climb up and get onto the limb, which was probably at least 12 feet above the ground. And on this limb we could sit and poke into the hole. If it felt like a snake was in it, we just kept poking until the snake got irritated with us, and then he would come out. But the only thing is, here you are at least 12 feet above the ground, and the snake comes out and stares you in the face, and you just have to freeze. And once he came out, and he would generally start climbing up the tree, where you would wait till his head was far enough up, and then you grabbed, and you threw him to the person below. 
And then the person below would take a stick and put over their head, and then you would catch them behind their head. How often did Ross Allen come around? Probably about once a month. How much did he pay, let's say, for a good-sized king snake? Well, they generally charged by the foot, maybe 10 cents a foot. I know a, a nice chicken snake, we'd get a dollar or a dollar and a half for. And Sometimes as high as two dollars. Yes, we hit it big time. Janie Gould prepared that report. I don't like spiders and snakes And that ain't what it takes to love me You fool Like I want to be loved by you This is Florida Frontiers. As early as the 18th century, settlers began migrating to Florida from other parts of the South. People of Celtic heritage who came here from the Carolinas, Georgia, and Alabama were often called crackers. Most live off the land from subsistence farming and free-ranging cattle. Others found ways of living off of Florida's rivers and lakes. Bill Dudley talks with two North Florida fishermen who may be among the last to practice their traditional occupation. you got to be born into it. If you ain't born into it, you ain't going to make it. That's Henry Buck Castles of Loch Lusa, a rural community southeast of Gainesville. Five days a week, starting in late afternoon, Buck and his son Wayne head out across Loch Lusa Lake, laying out trot lines for catfish. Each line contains 700 hooks, evenly spaced over some 2,100 feet. They return before sunrise to pull in the trot lines, removing and later cleaning their fish. Once, many rural Floridians made their livings fishing this way. Today, there's only a handful of trot line fishermen in the state. They're carrying on a tradition that stretches back well over a century in Florida, according to Wayne Castles. I graduated in 73. That's when I started. But I've been doing it before that. I mean, Daddy, he's done it for 80 years, and his daddy done it before that. So we've been here for over 100 years right now. Trotline catfishing was a really important part of cracker life, a major source of income and sustenance for crackers in this region, certainly in the early part of the 20th century and probably before that. Buck Castles, who is 80 years old, that's all he's ever done is catfish. Bob Stone is outreach coordinator for the Florida Folklife Program and state folklorist. We're quite sure that the castles are the last two trotline cat fishermen in Alachua County, and maybe even beyond that. There certainly aren't many left, and it, it gives us a real insight into how, for one thing, how important these lakes are. At the Folklife area of the 2010 Florida Folk Festival, the castles talk to visitors about their livelihood, displaying the tools of their trade, including a multi-layered wooden frame that allows the 2,100-foot fishing line to be racked so that bait can be more quickly attached to each of the 700 hooks before returning the line to the water. When not setting out or pulling in the lines, a fisherman may be found wading waist-deep in shallow flats, netting small grass shrimp for bait. Today, however, small pieces of aluminum foil are baiting the hooks on display. Sometimes they bite aluminum foil, sometimes they bite grass shrimp. Every now and then you try something different. If you won't be catching nothing, you just try a different bait, 
and it'll work. Buck Castles can remember before any of these modern techniques were invented. In his day, the line with its hooks was paid out from a large metal bowl. You put the line out and left it in the lake and bait it out there. Didn't know about these racks or nothing. You just left, anchored each end down, you pick it up, had a jug, you pick it up and go down it and put a piece of bait on that hook, pull the boat up to the next one, put a piece of bait on and, and didn't take it up. And use cotton lines and about a month and a half, you had to buy more. It'd rot out. But he didn't fish but about four or five hundred hooks when he was a long time ago because they didn't have no way. You know what I mean? They just they'd do it real slow. When he started, they paddled all the way across lakes. He said they build huts across the lake and spend the night, then paddle back. Back then, they used minnows and cut bait, but then somebody come in there and baited with some shrimp, and they really caught the fish. And since then, they baited with shrimp. A retired wildlife officer with the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, Lee Cruz, is a lifelong friend. I've known Wayne when he was in diapers. I've been knowing Buck probably 50 years. I knew Buck's daddy. He says that like other forms of commercial fishing, laying trot lines is no job for a lazy man. Let me tell you something. When I first went to work with the state of Florida, I thought they were lazy, sorry, no good people. But one day I found an illegal trot line, and it was about two miles long. So I had to pull it because it was illegal. So I started pulling that thing, and about four hours later, and my hands was cut up and my arms was cut up from them hooks, I changed my opinion on them people. They're hard working. That was the hardest thing I've done in many a year, pull that trot line. And I had a, a great respect for them after that. And the whole family gets involved with this fishing operation. The men will put the lines out. The men will come in and clean the fish. And the women will rack the lines back up and bait them while the men take a nap. So the whole family gets involved, the children and everybody. And Wayne was doing it. When, when he could walk, he was baiting trot lines. We come in. We walk in the house and maybe eat breakfast and walk right back out and go to cleaning. Five days a week. The hooks and line these fishermen use can catch catfish up to 25 pounds, but the average is a pound or less. Most are sold out of state. That seems unfortunate because the castles say anyone who eats one of these wild-caught fish won't want to go back to the farm-raised variety sold in restaurants and supermarkets. They, most people don't even know what they are. A lot of people I know don't even, I had never eat one. Yeah. Then they'll eat one and say, that boy of mine, he took some of them one day down and selling them. And the man come back, he said, I ain't never had nothing that good. He come back, he said, I need five more pounds of them. He said, that's the best fish I ever had. Commercial uh, pond raise or farm raised catfish, that's been the economic pressure that's made it so hard for trot line catfishermen and basically, for the most part, put them out of business. Like Wayne is in his 50s now. He says his kids aren't going into this. The young ones now just, they ain't going to do it. That's too much work. They ain't know where to sell the fish. They ain't no fish ones, really. So, pond raised, they got it. Restaurants and all, they can order 100 pounds, 200 pounds, ready to put in the pan. And these we got ain't like that. He remembers the prices paid for catfish in the days when he was a young man just starting out. Now we got 16 cents a pound. When I got married, I was getting 16 cents. We caught 100 pounds, we had $16. But you could buy Coca-Cola for a nickel. A loaf of bread was 12 cents. Liar light bill run about $7. And he's proud of having been a hard worker and a good provider. Raised three young'uns. Never was broke my life. Didn't have to borrow their damn penny. Didn't ask nobody for nothing. Although Buck and Wayne Castle still manage to make a living, the price they get for their fish hasn't kept up with their cost of doing business, especially the rising cost of fuel. If I go off fishing, it costs me $75, $80 a day to fish. Now i got to catch a buncher. 
you can't make it. And with none of the younger generation starting in the trot line business, Wayne Castles worries he and his dad may be the last bearers of this long Florida tradition. I guess it just, just ain't going to be none of it here in, I say, 15 years. It'll probably be extinct. You just don't sell that much and you don't make that much money. And it's a hard life. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Bill Dudley. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. You can find us right here again next week, and until then, please visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.